Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 9. I want to expand on some things that we uh, started on last Sunday night. I got over into the edge of them, and uh, and I, I just can't. My heart just won't turn loose of them. I, I want to go a little bit further if we can. Trust the Holy Ghost to help us. And give us wisdom and revelation in the truth of the word. Luke chapter 9 Then Jesus called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. We made the point before, but I think it uh, bears making again. I wonder what that felt like. I would submit to you that it didn't feel like anything. Because there were times, we'll see uh, one a little bit later in the service tonight, there were times where the disciples would argue about who was who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom well if this was a matter of power then all they had to do is judge by the results and the fact that they're not judging by the results the fact that Peter's not standing up and saying well I've got 12 cripples healed what have you done and each one claiming their own measure of success tells me that there was not a measure of success in that way that they could be used By that, I simply mean they all got equal success. Or the results were so similar that they couldn't stand up one against another and say, I'm greater than you, or I've got more than you, or he gave me more than he gave you, or the power of God's stronger in me than it is in you, or whatever the case is. I would submit to you that it didn't feel like anything. I would submit to you that it was much the same situation as when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. It says the Holy Ghost came upon him in bodily form as a dove. There was a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It doesn't say a word about Jesus feeling extra power. Folks, the point is simply this. The power of God is not seen and very rarely felt. Now you can sense it, but there's a big difference in sensing something spiritually and feeling it physically. Anyway, it says that he called his 12 disciples unto them and gave them power and authority over all devils, not just a few, not just the weak ones, but over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. We've spent a lot of time over the last number of weeks talking about the kingdom of God in... uh, well, really all the services, teaching a series on it on Sunday mornings, but I've been hitting around it and all around it over the last several months in each of the weekly services that we've held. I believe the kingdom of God was very simply defined by Jesus as where the will of God is done in the earth just like it is in heaven. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God. The will of God is for things to be here for you in this life, on this earth, just like they are in heaven. That would have to make sense. I, I'm, uh, I'm embarrassed that I'm as old as I am and been in ministry as long as I've been. And it never occurred to me to focus on that phrase, the kingdom of God. I always looked at it as a generic term that just meant stuff about God. But that can't be the case. He wouldn't have left it to the disciples to teach stuff about God because they didn't know any stuff about God. Had to mean something specific. 
Well, what did it mean then? The only definition Jesus gives us is where the will of God is done in the earth just like it is in heaven. And why would that not be the case? God's the same whether we're here or whether we're there. God's will is the same whether we're on earth or in heaven. God has made provisions just the same for his people through Jesus and the work of Jesus on the cross, culminating in the resurrection. The Bible says that he's delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, meaning the kingdom of God would have to mean that. He's made the same provisions for us while we're here on earth as he's made for us when we get to heaven. What's the difference? Well, the only difference is we're in a place in an earth where Satan is still in operation. We're under a system that's corrupted, although we're redeemed from it. The only difference when we get to heaven is that there'll be no presence of the devil. But you won't be different. God won't be different. What God has provided for you won't be different. Very few things will be different. But you know as well as I do that most people are looking at heaven as some means of escape. In my 35 years of ministry, almost 31 of them pastoring the church, I have never had anybody question what the will of God is in heaven. It's just not a question people have. If there's one thing the church has done, it's convinced people what the will of God is in heaven. Jesus said the good news of the kingdom was that God wants the same thing for you here, now, in this earth as he wants for you in heaven. And I believe that's the good news that they preached. I've said for many weeks now that that answers a lot of questions, but I was checked on that in my heart recently to say it in a different way. What question doesn't that answer? You want to know what things are going to be like in heaven? Or you want to know what things, what God wants things to be like for you here on the earth? Ask yourself, what are things going to be like in heaven? Is God going to teach you through sickness and disease in heaven? But it's not going to happen here on the earth. God going to make you keep your nose to the grindstone in heaven? Just to barely squeak by? And that's not what he's going to do here on the earth. So he gave them power and authority over to cast out all devils, or over all devils, and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staves nor script, neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece. And whatsoever house you enter into, there abide, and thence depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. We could summarize what he's telling them in these verses as travel light and trust God. The only stipulation he makes is the city being willing to receive him. In other words, faith on the part of the, the recipients to heal the sick and to cast out devils. Verse 6, and they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Preaching the gospel, that's the gospel of the kingdom of God. 
assuming we're defining that correctly. Preaching the good news that God wants things for you now here on the earth, just like he wants them for you in heaven. That he's made provision for them to be just like they are in heaven right now while you're here on the earth. Now, folks, if that's not what it means, I don't know what it does mean. Because there is no other scripture, there is no other explanation that can codify or summarize what the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God would be. Jesus told us in a lot in uh, a lot of different things in parables that the kingdom of God is like one thing or another. He talked about the kingdom of God is like a householder or a husbandman that left to go to a different place and left other people in charge and came back and called an account. We understand that that would be a type of Jesus coming back and holding his people accountable for the work that he's given us to do. So it tells us different characteristics of the kingdom of God, but there is no other place in the scripture where the kingdom of God is so well defined as what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the disciples took this. They took this power and authority. I think the Bible, if it, if it included physical, um, a feeling of physical power, and the Bible didn't tell us that, then God left us out in the cold. If that was the judge or the determination of whatever power they had was the, the feeling of power, and I will understand that we're influenced by our bodies to such a degree that that's the way we'd like it to be. We'd like to feel the power to know it's there. In that respect, at least, most of us would prefer to walk by sight and not by faith. To operate not according to what the the word says we have been given, but rather go by the feeling of the power and authority. I would furthermore submit to you that too many of the church the vast majority of the church fail to operate on the things that the Bible says to do because we lack that feeling of power. See, if you felt the healing power of God in and on you, it'd be easy to minister healing to the sick. But we're required to step out in faith on that, aren't we? And that can be a scary proposition from the physical standpoint. These guys didn't have that problem. Whatever it was about being with Jesus, whatever he told them that we don't have record of, whatever influence he had upon them in their unsaved form. These guys are unsaved men. They're unspiritual men. Yet they were willing to step out and do what the the Bible says Jesus told them to do. They went into the cities and preached the gospel of the kingdom and healed everywhere. Now, here's a question I've got for you. Did they have something more than what we have? The Bible says that we have a better covenant established upon the better promises. Jesus is operating under the old covenant, as are the disciples even though he delegates authority and healing power to them. They're operating under an old covenant. What the Bible says is not as good a covenant as what we have. 
We have a better covenant established upon better promises. Hebrews 8, 6 says. How could it be a better covenant if we don't have an equal authority over all devils as disciples of the Lord and an equal ability to heal the sick? How could it be a better covenant? Granted, it would be a different covenant, but how could it be a better covenant if it doesn't include everything that the Bible says belong to the old? Now, some would say, well, the apostles held a specific and better place. They were the 12. They were specifically called and had a greater anointing on them that the average believer has. And so that's why they did the things that we can't do. Well, okay, let's consider that for the sake of argument. At this point in Luke chapter 9, they're not apostles. They're disciples. If you're going to make the argument that the 12 apostles had something more than the, the normal Christian does, the average Christian does, under the new covenant, then you're going to have to at least wait till the day of Pentecost. I'm talking about what they did while they were here on the earth. I don't concede that, and I'll make the argument a little bit later as we get further into this message this evening. I don't concede that they had something more than what we have. But at the very least, if we consider it as a possibility, they don't meet the criteria in Luke chapter 9. They're just disciples. They're unsaved men. And you're going to tell me that an unsaved man following Jesus commissioned for a specific work for a specific period of time is greater and has something greater than a New Testament believer, a new creation in Christ Jesus? You better check your theology on that one. So they got results. Now there's one place and only one place where the Bible tells us that they didn't get results and that's in Mark chapter 9. Bible tells us the first part of the chapter is when Jesus took three of them, Peter, James, and John, with him and, uh, to pray. And while they were praying, they, he was transfigured, and he appeared in his glory. Moses and Elijah appeared with him. Peter gets excited, as a lot of people do when they get in the presence of God. He didn't know what to say, so he just blabbered out something about building three tents so they could all live there forever. And a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son, hear him. When they come back from that experience, the Bible says, beginning in verse 14, Mark chapter 9, verse 14, and when he came to his disciples, that means the other nine that are left behind, he's bringing three of them with him, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them, and straightway all the people when they beheld him were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him, and he asked the scribes, what question you with him? What are you asking my disciples? Jesus knew they didn't have any answers. Jesus knew that the same scribes that were trying to trip him up could very well be trying to do the same thing to his disciples, and they'd be held left defenseless. So he wants to know, what's been the topic of conversation here? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. I believe all evil spirits are dumb for rebelling against God. But I think this one's talking about one specifically that keeps the boy from speaking. 
And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foams and gnashes with his teeth and pines away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Now, we just read over in Luke chapter 9, verse 1, that Jesus gave the disciples, the 12, including these nine that were left behind when he took the other three to the Mount of Transfiguration. We see in Luke chapter 9 that he gave them power and authority over all devils. Well, all devils would include this one, wouldn't it? And he also gave them power to cure diseases or to heal the sick. So I want you to see something, folks. They have authority in this situation, but the authority doesn't work. The only time in the four Gospels that you can find, now Matthew gives us an account of this, Mark gives us an account, and Luke gives us an account, but it's the same story. So there's only one instance in the four Gospels in the three years of Jesus' ministry, the last two probably around the last two years was where he delegated his authority to the disciples. So in a two-year period, roughly a two-year period, the only time that we have record that the disciples' authority over evil spirits didn't work, and this is it. So he said, I brought them to thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. That indicates to me that they tried and failed. Wouldn't that make sense? How would anybody know that they couldn't if they hadn't tried? It would be one thing if the father said you weren't around so they wouldn't do anything about it. That's not what he says. He says they couldn't. That tells me they tried and failed. Verse 19, Jesus answered him, the father of the boy, the man that's speaking. Jesus answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Who is Jesus calling a part of the faithless generation? The Father. It does not say he turned around to his disciples and said, You bunch of buzzards. I go away for two hours to pray. And you guys mess this whole thing up. Why can't you believe anything? He's not calling his disciples faithless. He's saying the man. The father is without faith. Now we could make all kinds of justification for why the father is without faith. I'm sure that would be a tough thing to watch your son year after year after year endure. I'm sure he's reached the point of hopelessness on many occasions. Probably feels especially so because he finds out the disciples can't do anything to help him. But nevertheless, Jesus identifies the man as without faith. Now remember the only criteria that Jesus gave the disciples for operating in the authority that he gave them over all devils and to heal diseases, cure diseases, was for the city to receive them. In other words, faith on the part of the recipient. Here you've got a man that's without faith and he can't get results. So they brought him unto him. They brought the little boy unto Jesus. And when the little boy saw him, straightway the spirit that was in him tore him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. In other words, the evil spirit started taking control of his body and acting up. 
And he asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? Now notice what he does not do. Notice Jesus does not stand up and say, you evil spirit, I'm the son of God. How dare you act in this manner in my presence? Come out of it. And why not? Well, we've got a story in Mark chapter 6 and Luke chapter 4 where Jesus goes to his own hometown of Nazareth and he tells them that he's anointed to heal the sick. But the people won't receive him. And so it says in Mark chapter 6 verse 5 it says and he could there in his own hometown of Nazareth and he could there do no mighty work. Doesn't say he wouldn't. It says he couldn't. See folks God doesn't force anything on anybody even if it's through Jesus. God didn't force anything on anybody through Jesus in his earthly ministry. If people weren't willing to receive him by faith then he had to pass them by. It's not because God didn't want them helped. It's not because it wasn't the will of God for them to be delivered or healed or whatever the case might be. But it takes faith on the part of the individual to receive. So it says in Mark chapter 6 verse 5, And he could there do no mighty work, save or accept that he laid his hands on a few sick folks. The word sick is the word sickly in the original Greek. It means a few folks with minor ailments. So he could there do no mighty work. Didn't have any blind eyes open. Didn't have have any lepers cleansed. Didn't have any cripples raised up. But he was able, the only thing that he was able to do is lay hands on folks with a few minor ailments. Maybe he got a headache cured or something like that. And then it goes on to say, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, I know this cuts crossways with a lot of people's idea and doctrine about what Jesus did and why he did it. But the Bible says Jesus was prevented by the unbelief of the city from manifesting the power of God. Again, most people in the church world think that Jesus healed because he was the son of God. And since he was the son of God in every city, he did the same stuff everywhere he went. But the Bible doesn't bear that out. And this is the very reason why he tells the disciples, if a city receives you, then heal the sick therein and declare the kingdom of God has come near unto you. I think that means the kingdom of God is soon to come. We know the kingdom of God came with the new birth that followed the resurrection of Jesus. So if Jesus is telling the disciples that the unbelief of the cities that they go to will hinder them from doing the healing works, why would we expect that it works differently for Jesus? Because Jesus said himself, the Father in me is doing the works. It's not me that's doing them. Another translation of that would be to say, Jesus is identifying, I'm not working miracle works or healing the sick because I'm the Son of God. It's the anointing of the Spirit of God that's upon me that enables me to do it. And that anointing won't work unless faith is mixed with it. So what did Jesus do? Well, back to Mark 6, verse 5. And he could there do no mighty work, save or accept that he laid his hands upon a few sickly folks, a few folks with minor ailments, and he marveled because of their unbelief and went round about their villages teaching. He's trying to inspire faith. Because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So he's trying to build faith in the part of the people in that area. Because unless he can get them to mix faith with the anointing that he is anointed with, 
power of God can't operate, even though God wants it to, even though he wants it to. So Jesus has a conversation with his father about his faithlessness. Because unless Jesus can get the father in faith, he can't get any help with the little boy, even though God wants him to help the boy. Even though God sent Jesus to the earth to help people in this kind of condition. So he asked the father, he said, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And the father said, since he was a child. And oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the, to the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I believe one reason that the father has reached this stage of unbelief and this place of hopelessness is because he's seen this year after year after year. And folks, you need to realize something. The devil will try to use time to wear down your believing. The devil, one of the greatest weapons the devil uses is time, delay, to move you from faith to unbelief. So he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Well, let's consider that for a minute. Can Jesus do anything? Not unless he can get the Father in faith. It has nothing to do with whether or not Jesus is anointed. It has nothing to do with whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. It has nothing to do with whether Jesus feels strong that day or not. It has everything to do with whether or not he can get the Father in faith to receive. Just like he told the disciples. So Jesus turns it around on him. He says, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Now, the English translation of this is really, um, well, I hate to say it's incorrect because the words are correct, but the words that are used in the Greek really don't come through. The meaning that, that Jesus expressed in the original Greek language really doesn't come through here. Jesus answers the man sarcastically. He answers him by saying, if I can, if I can, he's very much implying the fact that it's not a matter of what I can do. Well, if the church world could get a hold of this, every Christian that I've ever met is convinced that God can do anything. You know, that's not true. We see scriptures that says with God all things are possible. And we assume since God is the creator of the universe, he can just do anything in the world that he wants to do. And that's not true. Let me give you a case in point. God cannot lie. So we can't say God can do anything if there are things that God cannot do. We see in Jesus' ministry, we just referenced in Mark chapter 6 in his hometown of Nazareth, he couldn't do any mighty work. Doesn't say that he didn't want to. Doesn't say that he wouldn't. It says that he couldn't because of their unbelief. He marvels at their unbelief. So here the man is operating in a very religious manner. The father is operating in a very religious manner. He's saying this should be based on what your ability is. This should be based on whether or not you can help me. And Jesus turns it around and very simply says, not a matter of what I can do. The question is, can you believe? Because all things are possible 
to him that believes. Now, here's where the man speaks up. He says something that's interesting to me. He says, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Now, let me ask you a question. We know that Jesus had a greater measure of anointing and power on him than he gave the apostles or the disciples at this point. No question about that. The Bible says Jesus had the spirit without measure. Yet the Bible specifically tells us that Jesus has already delegated to these 12 power and authority over all devils. That means this one included. Right? So they have authority over this devil. They've tried and failed. But the source of their failure is because they did not perceive what the, the, the lack or the hindrance to that power and authority working was. Jesus knows something that they don't know. Jesus knows from this father's words that it's his lack of faith that's hindering the work from being done. It's a lack of faith on the father's part that's keeping this healing power or delivering power from operating. The disciples could have found that out too, couldn't they? I mean, there was never a point where Jesus said, now I'll know when people are in faith, but you'll never know. So just try and hope for the best. Yet that's the way the church operates today. We try. Hope for good results. And if we don't get them, so much of the church world concludes, well, it's not God's will to heal everybody. Or maybe God's at work in some other way in this circumstance to teach you something or to bring you to a greater level of spiritual depth or maturity or piety or whatever they say. So I would submit to you that the disciples could have found, if they had an understanding, an equal understanding that we have, that a lack of faith or unbelief will hinder the power of God from working, they could have identified where the hindrance was too, just like Jesus did. Could they not? I mean, it didn't take some supernatural power on Jesus' part. It didn't take some revelation of the Holy Ghost on Jesus' part to see what the, what the problem was here. Jesus has already told them what the problem would be, and that is it takes faith on the part of the receiver. So now he's got the father understanding that it takes faith on his part for Jesus to be able to help. And listen to the way I said that, for Jesus to be able to help. Jesus has clearly identified that the power of God is not going to overcome this man's unbelief. The authority that Jesus has, the anointing Jesus has been given without measure, the spirit that's upon him without measure is not going to just bust through this situation and deliver this little boy irrespective of the man's unbelief. He puts it right back on the Father. Now, folks, I would submit to you that if healing preachers do that today, they are vilified. Because the idea is if somebody just asks for prayer, we've got to pray. And it's not supposed to matter if they're in unbelief. If we're claiming that God heals, we're supposed to perform. We're supposed to do the work no matter what. 
Well, if Jesus didn't do it that way, why should we try? Had a situation just a week or two ago where somebody came to church, came to Sunday night service, healing school, got here late, got in about the last five minutes of the service, and came to me afterwards and told me they wanted me to pray for their healing. So I began to question them. I began to ask them, what do you believe? What do you know about the word? What are you, what are you standing on? Well, spent about 10 minutes talking to them. And after that 10 minutes, and it wasn't just me preaching at them the whole time, but I was asking them questions, trying to show them different things in the word. I finally asked, looked them straight in the eye and said, now tell me what you're thinking. And they said, I'm thinking that I need to just go. And so they did. I didn't pray. And you could tell by the determined way that they walked. They weren't happy with me. But you tell me, what good in the world would it have done? In the talk that I had with them, I was able to identify that there was not an ounce of faith, not a bit of knowledge about the word of God. What good would it have done to try to pray for them and failed? I think the church has done too much of that. So Jesus turns it around on this guy, this man. And to some, that sounds cruel and cold. That's exactly what he did. He said, it's not a matter of what I can do. My power is not in question. The question is, can you believe? So the father says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That doesn't sound like great faith to me, does it to you? Now, let me ask you this. And this is the thing that the Lord's really been dealing with me about. We in the modern day church who teach faith have taught it to such a degree and place such an emphasis on it that I think a lot of people, maybe not everybody, but a lot of people have the idea that if you're going to get any results from God, it's going to take great, great, great faith. And everything has to be just so-so and just right. And if you mess up on your confession or your believing or whatever the case is, forget it. No help for you. But I would submit this to you. If it takes greater faith, if it takes us teaching and preaching the word of God to a greater degree than Jesus did, so that it takes greater faith for people to receive from us, than it took for them to receive from him, then we're being cheated. Are you out there? Do you understand the point that I'm making? Where did we get the idea that it takes greater faith for people to receive today than it took to receive from Jesus when he was here? Or from the disciples when they were healing the sick in their earthly ministry? Or during Jesus' earthly ministry. Where do we get that idea? I've had it myself. I'm not throwing rocks at anybody. For wrong thinking. I've had it myself. But that thinking is changing. God's not looking for the select people that he can show his power to. 
He's not looking for the lucky one out of a million that just happens to do everything right and believe just right and confess just right. He's looking to show that the church has the power to heal sick, heal the sick, cure diseases, and set people free from the bondage of the enemy. That's never changed for him. The same desire that God had when he sent Jesus to the earth to destroy the power of the devil, that he delegated to the 12 while they were here on the earth, when he was here on the earth, is the same will of God for today. He's just looking for the slightest bit of faith. He's just looking for faith, for something that he can call faith, if you'll allow me to say it that way, to bring about healing results. Well, if that's true, Pastor Mike, why haven't we stumbled up on more healings? Because we don't have faith or confidence. We as individuals, believers, don't have confidence in what he gave us. Now, the father says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That was enough for Jesus. Jesus sees the people coming running together, and he rebukes the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore, and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose and he was coming, when he was coming to the house his disciples asked him privately why could we not cast him out and he said unto him this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting Now I'm going to put together what Matthew said about this too Matthew added to this Matthew was an eyewitness account he was there he was one of the nine that couldn't do anything he said that Jesus said to him because of your unbelief For if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you would say to the sycamine tree, be uprooted or plucked up by the roots and cast into the sea. How be it? This kind goeth forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. And we know that Jesus didn't have to pray and fast. So what he's telling the disciples is their prayer and fasting would have been necessary to break the hold of this evil spirit. Now what does prayer and fasting do? While I'm talking, turn with me over to Matthew chapter 11. Prayer and fasting doesn't change God. It doesn't increase your spiritual power. If that were the case, if it did increase spiritual power, then you could tell who did the most praying and fasting by being able to identify who had the greatest degree of power. But it doesn't work that way, folks. Prayer and fasting doesn't change God a lick. God's the same before you pray and fast, while you're praying and fasting, and after you finish praying and fasting. God doesn't change. So praying and fasting doesn't change God. It doesn't change your spiritual power level. What does prayer and fasting do? It changes your spiritual receptivity or your spiritual sensitivity. It makes you more sensitive and more aware of spiritual things than you are of natural things. That's all prayer and fasting does. The prayer and fasting that Jesus is talking about here. Now, if you found Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 11, um, 
Well, I need to start with verse 1. I hate to, hate to read this much, but I need to get the context of what's going on. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. And it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now, when John had heard, had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto them, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Or are we still waiting for somebody else? Now, remember, John at one time had proclaimed Jesus as being the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Now he's in prison. Things are getting kind of tough, and apparently he's getting a little bit discouraged, and he's not sure what's what anymore. And Jesus, instead of chastising John through through his disciples, instead of saying, you know, I thought John would be strong and hold out to the end, but here he is wimping out on me. Instead of holding any accusation against him whatsoever, he just answers and says, go show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Now notice what Jesus says is the proof of the Messiah, of the Christ. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, and so forth. When did that change? When did the proof that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who's now risen from the dead, in their day was sent to take away the sin of the world, and our day has taken away the sin of the world? When did the proof of Jesus being the risen Savior and risen Son of God change from being the deaf hearing and the blind seeing, the lame walking, and so forth? There's a very small segment of the church that still looks for those things as proof and evidence today of Jesus being risen from the dead, of Jesus being the Messiah. When did it change? Where did God change it? He didn't. Without question, the church or much of the church has changed it. But if that was the proof that Jesus said that he was the Christ, that he was the Messiah, when he was here in his earthly ministry, then that's got to be the same proof and evidence today. Does it not? Because God doesn't change. God's will doesn't change. His purpose doesn't change. His plan doesn't change. And that should be the proof that the church has to give today that Jesus is the Christ. It's not our ability to persuade people, to convince them. Jesus said the proof is in what you hear and see. Verse 7, and as they departed, John's two disciples departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, what went you out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? Are you looking for somebody that's dainty and, and frail? Somebody that'll be nice and pleasant in every circumstance? But what went you out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in the king's houses, not out in the wilderness. But what went you out to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, 
There has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. That means he's greater than Moses. Means he's greater than Elijah. Means he's greater than Elisha. He's greater than Isaiah. He's greater than Jeremiah. He's greater than any and all of the prophets. Jesus said there has never been one that was arisen that was greater than John the Baptist. Now John the Baptist didn't do a miracle. Not one. What made John the Baptist so great among the prophets? The message that he was given. His proximity to speak about the Messiah's arrival made John the Baptist the greatest of the prophets. In other words, his message about Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah who has come, made him the greatest of the prophets. That is the greatest message there is. Notice how Jesus finished this verse, though. Notwithstanding. Notwithstanding. He that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, who's he talking about? He's talking about the least in the family of God. He's talking about the least among those who are born again or shall be born again. The least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, folks, we're kind of running a circle here. I'm going to tie this up. If the disciples were given authority over all devils and to cure diseases, and they went preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing everywhere, only time we have evidence or record that it didn't work for them is when they were not able to discern the unbelief on the part of the Father. I have to conclude that they could have gotten the same results as Jesus did in Mark chapter 9 if they had identified the unbelief of the Father and been able to get him over into faith. Then it would have worked. Therefore, I have to conclude that the least in the kingdom of God the person that senses or believes or thinks that they have less than anybody else in God's family, though they're born again, has to have more than the disciples. Because Jesus didn't say John the Baptist was the greatest of the prophets, but the disciples are greater than him because of what I've given him. He's talking about the greatest of the Old Testament characters. The disciples were part of the Old Testament characters. So that would mean that if you're born again, you've made Jesus the Lord of your life. You've got a greater position than they had. Now, I I don't want to leave Mark chapter 9 yet. I want to read something else to you here. Because, again, some some people will take the position that the apostles had something special, something extra, and so forth. Let's go back to reading in Mark chapter 9. We ended in verse 29. The next three verses, verse 30 30, and 31, is where Jesus foretells his death and his resurrection. 
Now, I want to start in verse 33. And he came to Capernaum and began in the, and being in the house, he asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? Now, I want you to see that these men are just carnal, natural thinking men. There's nothing spiritual about these guys. They were willing to follow Jesus. That's to their credit. They were willing to accept what Jesus said to them and preach to them. That's to their credit. They were bold enough to act on what Jesus said that he was giving them. That's to their credit. But it's not like these guys are spiritual giants. So Jesus said, what was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way, but they held their peace? Nobody wanted to answer. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. Now, they've just had a failure earlier in Mark chapter 9. And they're talking about who's the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken them in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one such of such children in my name receives me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me but him that sent me. In other words, Jesus is saying the key to being great in the kingdom of God. Now, we've just said, we've just identified that Jesus said the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist, who is greater than all the prophets, and certainly greater than these guys, these disciples, prior to the new birth. So now he's saying if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, it's not about what you think of yourself. It's about what you do to help other people. Now notice the next thing that the Bible tells us. Verse 38. And John answered him. And John answered him. He's answering Jesus saying, you receive a child in my name, you're receiving me. You receive me, you're receiving him that sent me. And John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. Now that's an interesting concept. We saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followed not us. And we forbade him because he followed not us. In other words, he's saying, we found somebody that's not a part of our 12 that was casting out devils in your name. How did that work? Notice he said they were successful. They were casting out devils in your name. Not trying without success, but casting out devils. How did that work? Apparently the power and authority to cast out devils was not in the possession of a select few, but rather was in the name of Jesus. Because that's what the man is using. We saw one casting out devils in your name. Now folks, if that was true when Jesus was here on the earth, How much more is it true now where Jesus said, the Bible tells us that Jesus, following his resurrection, his defeat of the devil and all of the devil's works, has been given a name that's above every name in heaven, earth, and hell. At this point in time, in Mark chapter 9, when John is referring to the guy that's casting out devils in the name of Jesus, Jesus didn't have all authority in heaven and in earth. Jesus hadn't been given a name through the conquest of the devil. 
he's just operating in the name of this man is just operating in the name of Jesus who is the Messiah sent to take away the sin of the world but he hadn't even finished his work yet if that name Jesus name while he was here in his earthly ministry if that name was sufficient to cast out devils on the part of, of an individual a man who just simply stepped out and used the name rather than having some specific call or plan of God on his life. We never find out who this guy is, by the way. We don't know that he becomes some pastor in some church later on or that God has some ministry call on his life. He's just a guy that uses the name under the old covenant. Well, then how do you think that compares to using the name under the new covenant? The better covenant established upon better promises. One final scripture I want you to look at over in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John healed the man at the beautiful gate. Now things have changed. Now they are apostles. Sent ones. And they get the man healed at the beautiful gate. Laid daily at the gate. Everybody knows him. Everybody passes by when they go in and out of the temple. This man sees Peter and John about to go into the temple and asked them for money. Verse 4 of Acts chapter 3, And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none. Doesn't mean they were broke. Just means he didn't bring any money with him to the temple. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. What do you have, Peter, now that you're an apostle, now that you're born again, now that you've commissioned, been commissioned by God with a special ministry and a special anointing? What do you have? Such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. Now, can I ask you a question? Is this a different name than he used while he was here on the earth? Well, from God's perspective, yeah, it is. But is Peter doing anything different than he did while, he, while Jesus was still here? Doesn't seem so. Does Peter know that the name has greater power now than it had before? Well, he went preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing everywhere before. Now he's healing here in Jerusalem. I'm not sure he saw much difference. We know that there was because we have greater revelation from the Bible about the new birth and what it entails. Did Peter know? No indication that he did. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he leaping up stood and walked and entered with them into the temple walking and leaping and praising God. He won't turn these guys loose. He's jumping around like a happy guy. I can imagine how delirious he would have been with joy. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was him which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what which had happened to him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, when he saw the crowd gathering, when he saw it, he answered unto the people uh, in this manner, 
you men of Israel, why marvel you at this? Or why look you so earnestly on us as though by our own power, our own holiness, we had made this man to walk? Now, I would submit to you folks that the argument that most of the church world has is that the apostles had greater power than we do, and that's why they did greater works. Peter says they didn't have any extra power. The second argument or uh, position that the church takes is that the apostles were holy, a special place of holiness because of their walk with Jesus here on the earth and their close association with him. Peter said they didn't have any special power and he said they didn't have any special holiness. Now I know that people with a lot of doctorates behind their name, LDs, DDs, PhDs, DVs, whatever. I know that a lot of them make a case for the apostles having something extra than you and I have and so we can't expect to do the same works that they did. But I would ask the question, who's going to know better what the apostles had than the apostles? And Peter clearly says it's not special power on their part and it's not some special place with God on their part that enabled the man to be healed. Well, if it wasn't some special thing that the apostles had, what did the job? Verse 13, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his son, Jesus. I wonder if God's quit doing that. When did that end? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God has raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. He not only preaches Jesus crucified, he blames them for the crucifixion. Verse 16. What did the job? And his name. Through faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him has given, this, given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Has the name of Jesus changed? Some people say, yeah, but the early church did that stuff. God had to do that stuff with the early church to prove that Jesus was alive. So God's not interested in proving Jesus is alive today. Yeah, well, that healing power was done away with when the last apostle died. I see. So it was dependent on the people, even though the people involved said it wasn't them. Here's the real question, the million-dollar question. Has the name of Jesus changed? If the name of Jesus hasn't changed, then the same work that the name of Jesus did in the early days of the church will perform that that name will perform the same works in the present day church if we can just find somebody that has faith in the name and his name through faith in his name has made this man strong in the presence of you all folks I hope your faith is rising mine certainly is through this stuff We need to quit looking for special circumstances. 
We need to find any, uh, any speck of faith that we can find on the part of individuals. We need to tell them that God wants the same thing for them now here on the earth as he does want the, for them when they get to heaven. And then minister to the sick. Just be bold to do what the Bible says to do and let God be responsible for the results. Notice there's nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the New Testament where it says to pray for the sick. It says to heal the sick. We prayed that God would do the church's job. The church's job is to heal the sick. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, James 5, 14 says the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. That word prayer means vow or declaration. It's the declaration of faith that heals the sick in the church. It's not asking God to do anything. Why? Because the healing power of God has been given to the church. Power and authority over all devils has been given to the church. We need to quit asking God to do what he's commissioned the church to do. Amen. When this really takes hold of us, I'm convinced it's going to change everything around us. We're going to see spectacular things happen to such a degree that the miraculous will seem commonplace. By that, I don't mean we'll take it for granted. I don't ever want to take it for granted. But it'll stop being a surprise to us. That's one of the strangest things about what, Paul, what Peter said in Acts chapter 3. He said, why marvel you at this? He's indicating we see this stuff all the time. We're not surprised by it anymore. Most churches, if they had a miracle, would have to have prayer for the sick for all the heart attacks that took place among the congregation. Peter said, why marvel you at this? Oh, God wants to do so much more than we give him credit for. But it takes faith on our part to do what he said to do, to use his name. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much for what you've invested in us in the name of Jesus. Thank you that that name has not lost one ounce of power. That name is just as real, just as strong, just as powerful today as it was in the early days of the church. When the apostles used it. We thank you that miracles are just as much a part of your desire and your will for the present day as they were in the early days of the church. You haven't changed a bit. And if the proof that Jesus gave the two disciples of John that he was the Messiah was the blind being healed, the deaf hearing, the lame walking, and so forth, then we have to conclude that that's the same will of God to prove that Jesus is alive today. So we thank you for healing miracles, Lord. We thank you for blind eyes being opened. We thank you for deaf ears being opened. We thank you for lame limbs receiving strength, and the lame being healed and walking. We thank you, Father, for cancerous tumors disappearing. We thank you for healing from every sickness and every disease in manifested form in our church. In the precious and holy name of Jesus. We see from your word, Father, that you've made this place a healing center. Not just so that we can receive healing for ourselves, but so that we can take healing out to the world 
I would ask, Father, that you would give us opportunities to lay hands on the sick. And boldness to act on what the word says we should do. We'll give you all the praise and the glory and the honor for everything that's done, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank God for the Holy Ghost enabling us to see who we really are in him. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.